That is something I would stick around for. So praise the Lord. That's awesome. Well, hey, why don't you stand? Once you've found a spot, why don't you stand with your Bible ready? We're going to go ahead and read together from uh, Hebrews, actually, this morning as we start our time in the Word together. I'm going to invite you to go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to read verses 19 through 25. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Here we go. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter... Hang on a second, is it? All right. Okay, here we go. Let's try that again from verse 19. <laughs> All right. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a brand new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. Amen. Why don't you go ahead and be seated. We're gonna, this was an issue last week. We're going to head this one off at the pass. Is that all right, Layden? Is that a good spot? Okay, thank you. Well, some of you are from other places and uh, places that I know firsthand uh, in many respects are beautiful, but in many respects are an eyesore. Um, I'm from Illinois, which is to say that there are basically two seasons. There's winter and construction season. And uh, between the roads being torn up and about a billboard every 15 or 20 feet or so, um, you can feel when you leave sort of the rural areas of certainly Tennessee through Kentucky or even Indiana, but as you make your way through southern Illinois, it still remains somewhat rural, somewhat uh, open fields and open lands and stuff, rather flat, if, if I can say so. But, but then you start getting past the midway point in Illinois, start getting up closer to Chicago, and you can feel when you get into the Chicagoland area, which is an enormous metropolitan area. It's probably third behind New York and L.A. and the base and all that kind of thing, but it's, it's a, you can feel it. Uh, you can feel it because it becomes a concrete jungle. Uh, street lights all of a sudden go from being really sparse to really, really just like, like you're running a gauntlet. Uh, Billboards are just all over the place. It just feels like you've left anything resembling fresh air and open spaces, and all of a sudden you're just in this <sighs> kind of a thing. California at least has mountains and stuff. You know, it's kind of pretty in a lot of ways, but you start getting into some areas, and it's just kind of like, man, the traffic is just awful and this kind of thing. So I was thinking about this morning, that this morning, and... There's a lot of reasons, and that's just one of them. There's a lot of reasons why I'm very excited about the new heavens and the new earth that's coming. There is an end to all the stuff that we 
just sort of have had to get used to in this life. And I'm just talking about some of the practical daily experience kinds of things. Just stuff that you're like, man, this is, you know, ugh. There's a day coming very soon that as believers, we look forward to with great anticipation where, if you will, the skies are going to be blue all the time. It's not going to be pollution and smog. People are going to be kind to each other. I used to joke when we moved to um, Tennessee that one of the differences between Tennessee and Illinois is that when you put your turn signal on in Tennessee, they know that means you want to come into the lane, and generally speaking, up until recently. Uh, <laughs> I guess I'm partly to blame for that, not being from here. But, you know, in Chicago, when you put your signal on, and in California, I've noticed, too, I've spent a pretty fair amount of time there, too, uh, it's like you're challenging the guy behind you. <laughs> you can almost hear them say, oh, yeah? <laughs> Suddenly, you can almost control their speed on the highway based on when you put your signal on or off, you know? So, um, but there's a lot of things, and I'm being, obviously, I'm just kind of goofing around a little bit here with some of this stuff, but there's a lot of reasons why we, as a, as a body, as the body of Christ, uh, have to look forward to what is coming. Obviously, there are people around the world that could breathe out a hearty amen to that in ways that we can't even imagine, suffering and difficulty among believers uh, who day after day after day throughout much of their lifetimes endure such suffering and such difficulty and such hardship that I have to believe in some sense that heaven is going to be even more sweet to them when they finally leave the threshold behind and go across it into heaven's country and this kind of thing. But we all ought to be looking forward to this. I mean, if, if we're so attached to this world that we're not that excited about going home to be with the Lord, we probably need to readjust a few things in our lives and kind of get a better perspective on, on, on what this is really all about. I'm going to invite you to turn um, to <clears throat> excuse me, Revelation chapter 21. I have to admit, I'm, I'm a little sad. There's only one chapter left after this. It's funny, when we get to the end of a study of some kind, and this one is feeling like it already, um, you know, any of you who've ever taught Bible studies and stuff, you know it's like to have a few extra commentaries on the desk or something like that, just the things you use to prep and prepare for. And when we come to an end of a book study, and I end up putting those, I always put the stuff I use kind of within arm's reach because I get in there a lot during the course of the week week in and week out during the time we're going through a book. And then we come to the end of it, and I kind of put it back on my shelf where the rest of a lot of my study stuff is. And it's like saying goodbye to an old friend, you know, or a bunch of old friends in, in the case of some of the people you read and study with and that. But um, so if I, if I feel like I'm taking my time a little bit over the next couple of chapters, um, it's because I kind of am. These are, um, you know, the book of Revelation is, is a manifold blessing. Um, Jesus, matter of fact, the scriptures tell us so. I mean, you're barely into the book, and you're told about the blessing that comes from hearing and reading and living out the things in this book. And, uh, and it's true. Um, Jesus speaks to his church in those opening couple of chapters, two and three, uh, with such encouragement and such warning and correction where necessary and these kinds of things. But it's, it's we know the Holy Spirit inspires all of the scripture, but there is something kind of special about knowing Jesus wrote to his body. And when we glean from these things, it's good for us. It's, it's a blessing. When we read through 
the largest section of the book, which of course opens up the judgments of God upon the earth and all of this, in some ways obviously it can be disconcerting to realize just what trauma is about to come upon the earth in those days. But on the other hand, it also reminds us of the fact that righteousness one day will deal with these things, that the hand of true and right, clear, honest, clearly seen justice will deal with all the inequities and wrongs in this world. And that's our God. He does that. And then at the end of all that, when it's all finished, he'll invite us to go ahead and spend eternity in a place where, as we'll read today, there's, there's not even sorrow of any kind. There's nothing to be disappointed in. There's no lack of any kind. There's nothing to undermine anything. It's just beautiful and perfect and a blessing. This is why I like to tell especially young people, um, you know, you've got your whole life ahead of you, and we don't know when Jesus is coming for us. We don't have an answer to when that's going to be, uh, regardless of the countless books that would seem to indicate the contrary. We don't really know when he's going to come and bring his bride home. And so we live each day with the expectancy that he might come, but at the same time, we also go about our days and that kind of thing. But I especially love to encourage young people who have their whole lives ahead of them. Heaven is not going to be a disappointment. Being with Jesus is going to be the greatest thrill that is beyond your understanding right now. These are things that we don't want to read about and think about as something that, man, I hope it doesn't come just yet. Uh, it's, it's been striking me a lot lately um, what a very lofty, exalted view of God can do for us in our sense of priority to recognize that one day we'll get to see him face to face, and that is the richest of all possible blessings. As a matter of fact, heaven is heaven because he's there. It's not the streets of gold. They walk on that. It's nothing impressive there. But he's there. That's something to be excited about, something to look forward to with tremendous longing and anticipation. And I'll be honest with you, I do long for that day. There's a lot of things I love about life right now, no, no doubt. But none of them is, nobody ever passed from this life, went into the presence of God, and said, oh, if I just could have, oh, darn it, I wasn't done with, oh, I'd always hoped I'd, no. There's awe, there's wonder, there is glory beyond expression, there's beauty beyond anything we can you know, Paul talks about himself in the third person. He says, I knew this one that went into the third heaven and saw things that would be unlawful to talk about. I, I kind of feel like what he's saying there is that if I tried to describe what I saw, I would not do it justice. Truly, eye has not seen nor ear heard what God has prepared for those who love him in the ultimate sense. There is such joy waiting for us. So when we read these opening words here in chapter 21... Let that all sink in. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and also there was no more sea. And then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. That whole idea, God himself will be with them. That's huge. 
And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, no, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. In other words, you can take them to the bank. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire, which burns with fire, in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. that last verse seems a little out of place with everything that came before. It's actually not. It's actually not. We'll talk about it when we get there. But human history, as we know it, ends here. Not right here. I mean, if I got your attention there, that's good. But, but John is describing really what is a, uh, a bridge. Now, he says, I saw a new heavens and a new earth because the old ones had passed away. We saw that in chapter 20, verse 11. Uh, I was going to say that um, you know, heaven and earth fled away in 2011 or 2011, but that might have sounded a little cheeky. But the idea that in the earlier chapter we saw that in light of the judgment that was now coming upon those who are about to face the second death, heaven and earth fled away. In other words, everything that they stood on, everything they built their lives upon, everything that gave them a sense of firm footing and foundation just fled away. It was gone. Suddenly they found themselves, if I could borrow from Francis Schaeffer, and it's in a different context, but I love the expression, they literally found themselves with their feet firmly planted in midair. Everything that they knew was gone. Everything they hid behind, gone. They just stood there fully exposed and helpless as they stood there and recognized the error of their ways and faced the judgment that they had brought upon themselves. But in that same moment where the heavens and earth fleet away, John recognizes that while that fleets away, there is now a new heavens and a new earth. I don't know how quickly the scene unfolds and changes and takes place. There's a part of me that wonders if it doesn't sort of just move at a pace that you can sort of begin to take in the magnitude. But I, I don't know if we really could, even in our glorified bodies, to understand what the entire universe, all of the heavens and the earth flee away. Like, wh what do you compare that to? What, what, what can you look at? You could think of the most amazing sci-fi effects you've ever seen in a movie, and it, it doesn't do it justice to see the entire universe just change in an instant like that. It's breathtaking. We're reminded again of the power of God and His capacity to not only create, but even to recreate. It's beautiful. It's truly glorious. It is extraordinary by every definition and measure. It's breathtaking. Normally, in most contexts, when you say something like, oh, it's, you know, like when you even just say that term, a new heavens, a new earth, we don't even have a context through which to, to sort of understand that. But here, it's almost understated. Like it just happens. The old one fleets away, and now there's a new one. Wow. God can just do that. Such is our God. It's beyond our knowledge to really truly grasp all that's going on here, but we should recognize, too, that what is going on here is something brand new. That everything 
that was of the old world, the old heavens and, and even, even the, 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 the sky, the universe and all these things. In Job, what is it, Job 15, I think it talks about how even the heavens are not pure in God's sight. I mean, the fall decimated creation. But in just a word, in just a moment, God makes it all new. There's a new heavens and a new earth. And this one will never be fallen. This one will never be tainted. It will never be stained. It will never be less than everything that God created it to be. Now, there's a, a breathtaking amount of thinking that could go into the whys and all this kind of stuff that goes on, but just bask in the fact that this is what God does and what God will do one day and that you and I will get to be part of. Talk about an opportunity to worship. I'm going to invite you just for a second, too, to turn to 2 Peter chapter 3 for a moment. I want to read a passage here that does talk a little bit about this. This, uh, we're going to look at verse 10 through 13. This is part of a discussion that Peter is having about those who sort of mock God and those who are waiting for him to wrap things up and saying, well, things have been going on like this since the beginning. Where is the, where's his coming and all of this stuff? And Peter tells them not to be concerned by this because God measures time and everything different. A day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. The point is that the day is coming. And here in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And he goes on to say, therefore, beloved, looking forward to these. There's excitement involved in this. These things are things that we look for. Uh, in the Psalms, Israel would cry out to God in the midst of their, uh, of their persecution and even enslavement and call out and say, how long, O Lord? How long until you hear me again? Will you ignore me? Will you not pay attention to me? That's the feeling that they experienced in those times. Clearly, God was watching, and he was doing things in an orderly way to accomplish a purpose in a set amount of time that he ordains, and he does things according to his will in the time that he lays it out and accomplishes his purposes. Peter is essentially saying this too. Oh, you think it's been a little bit of time since, since God has made this promise of these things coming. Don't worry about that. It's not a matter of how long. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. And it'll be right on time. It'll be exactly when God decides it's time for it. We'll talk more about that at the end. But Peter talks about how the heavens, the creation itself, just melts with fervent heat. It just dissolves. In scientific terms, it's almost like God sort of just lets the atoms go. You know? It's like it just all falls, just dissolves. It's just like this massive fission thing or whatever. It just all happens. And Peter says we look forward to this because we know what comes next. Believer, do you know what comes next? And what does that do to you? What does that do to your heart? How does that make you think and feel? What does it, what does it mean to you to know that one day you're going to see him in his glory as he recreates the heaven and the earth? 
And when John says new, he's talking about new. There is some debate in theological circles about whether or not God is just sort of reworking what's already there or whether he starts from, basically starts from scratch. The term seems to imply it's new, new stuff, new everything, which I like. There's not even a reminder or residual of the old, you know? I think that's awesome and beautiful and pure. It's, it's a cosmic version of what he did with us. Behold, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. All things pass away. All things become new. Now he does it on a universal scale. It's beautiful. It's glorious. And this glorious word that we're reading about is actually the fulfillment of promises that God has made throughout Scripture. Places like Isaiah 65 and 66 talk about the idea of him creating something new and all of this, and the idea of a new heavens and a new earth and all of this. This is something that God has always had in the program and in the plan. Uh, Things didn't sort of fall apart and the world just didn't turn out like he had hoped, and so therefore he's going to just start over. No, there's none of that. He has always talked about this. This has been his intention from even before time. This is what his plan and purpose ultimately culminates into. We said last week that that which was unraveled in Genesis essentially gets wrapped up in Revelation. And so John goes on to talk more about this back in Revelation 21. I should mention, too, he says there's no more sea. The sea is so often... um, representative of the nations in that. As a matter of fact, in Daniel we see this, and we see it also not only as representative of the nations, but that from which uh, the Antichrist ultimately will rise out of, uh, the sea of people in that. Daniel, interestingly, earlier in chapter 7, talks about these beasts coming out of the sea, and then later in chapter 7 he talks about this one who ultimately has risen up out of the earth. Uh, in other words, the sea seems to represent humanity, and from this, this, this leader from among men will stand against the Ancient of Days when he comes to establish his kingdom. The sea seems to have those kinds of connotations to it. In the previous uh, uh, couple of uh, messages back, we talked about how the sea gave up her dead and this kind of thing, and some people try to draw connections there between the sea giving up her dead in that setting, and now the sea is no more. The closest thing to it is what is called the glassy sea that John sees there sort of before the throne, the idea of the word of God, that being upon which we stand in his presence and that kind of thing. The metaphor is beautiful. But there's no more ocean like this. It's another evidence of the fact that there's a new earth in view here. This is something different fundamentally than what we have come to know, something different than what we've been used to. It's it's not that it wouldn't necessarily be somewhat recognizable in a way, but it won't be like it was. It won't be the same kind of thing. Well, John goes on here again, verse 2, and says, I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. New Jerusalem, of course, Jerusalem previously in chapter 11 was likened to Sodom in Egypt. And so Jerusalem here on the earth, which had become sort of a place of idolatry, and this among even God's own people, his chosen people, ultimately they come and they're saved, as Paul would say in Romans 11, fulfilling his promises to them. We see them, whether it's the witnesses, whether it's the 144,000, but we see them ultimately, a remnant of Israel ultimately entering into the kingdom that's been promised to them. But Jerusalem, prior to this point, has been likened to some dirty places, But now a new Jerusalem comes down from heaven, and it's unclear whether this city is sort of 
um, sort of a, a renewed place like the old Jerusalem that is sort of created in that moment, or whether it's been sort of there. Uh, some commentators even called it sort of a satellite city during all of this until the time came for it to ultimately descend. But a new Jerusalem comes down that John sees. It's like a bride adorned for her husband. As a matter of fact, the new Jerusalem uh, raises questions. Is it metaphorical for, uh, for the bride of Christ or even the wife of Jehovah, Israel, from the Old Testament, as, as she's referred to? And the question is raised, is the New Jerusalem representative or metaphorical analogy for uh, those who are believers entering into that final, full, redemptive place of being with the Lord forever, or whether it's intended to be seen as a real city? Um, I, I think there's some merit to the idea that it's metaphorical because it is called the bride. However... The fact that measurements and descriptions and all kinds of things come to play as, as, as the passage continues to unfold in this chapter and later, um, I tend to lean toward the idea that it is, in fact, an actual city, that John is seeing a new Jerusalem come down that will actually be described in great detail as we make our way through here. Um, but it is, again, a glorious thing to consider uh, as John sees this vision. We'll talk more about the new Jerusalem as we make our way through um, you know, the coming passages in that. But verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and he, uh, uh, they will be, shall be his people. God himself will be with them and will be their God. Now, um, the tabernacle. First off, a voice comes from heaven um, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. It's presumed that this is an angel, um, although we don't know for sure. It doesn't clearly say who it is. But he speaks about how they will, uh, he will dwell with his people, and they will, they will be his people, and he himself will be with them and be their God. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, this is what makes heaven heaven ultimately. But let me talk about the tabernacle for just a moment. In the Old Testament... When Moses went up on the mountain, some of you are very familiar with the passage where Moses goes up on the mountain in Exodus, God calls him up there, and he brings down the commandments. But he also brings down plans to build this structure, a structure that would essentially be a form of a tent surrounded by uh, a wall, but it was a temporary structure that could be constructed and taken down and moved when necessary. Why would it be necessary? Well, because over the central area or the... Uh, the, the deepest section of this inner area, this tent that was known as the tabernacle, um, the, what is called the Shekinah glory of God would dwell. You're all familiar. Maybe you've read it or you've seen certainly Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments, but you see the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day. Uh, this is what is known as the Shekinah glory. The word Shekinah means the presence or the dwelling of. It, it, it refers to this idea of God's presence dwelling with his people. It's, uh, it's a Hebrew term that is sort of added in the Targums in that, uh, among the Hebrew literature in that. It's not a biblical term, but it describes a biblical event. And so from time to time, as God would decide to lead them into different areas, as he ultimately would bring them to the promised land, the Shekinah glory, the pillar of fire at night, the pillar of cloud by day, would move, and they would disassemble the tent and the, the, the wall area that was all built with 
with wooden poles and, and badger skins and all these different things that are described. And they would collapse it all and move it and follow the Lord around until he stopped at a place. And then when he stopped, they would build the camp around that place with, with that Shekinah glory. And it had to be a sight to behold as they would be constructing the tabernacle. And there's the, there's the glory of God above them, directly, physically manifested above them. And they would build this tabernacle with the Holy of Holies being the place that the Shekinah would dwell directly over. And then you had the holy place, and then you had the courts, and then you had this, again, this structure of this wall built around it. And this was the place where Israel would worship. But the tabernacle was also called by another name, the tent of meeting. And the idea was is that this is where God would meet with his people, and his people could meet with him through a priesthood and all of this. But this was the place where they would come to worship. This is where God was. I mean, God's presence filled the universe. It fills everything. There's nowhere that God isn't. But in a very real and, and in that particular case, tangible sense, there the Lord was, right over the Holy of Holies. And they could all see it all day and all night. And they would worship. And they would gather around. And God was with them. John in, 1 John, or in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, speaks about how the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Greek word that he uses there finds its origins in that idea of the Shekinah. As a matter of fact, the word in Greek sounds somewhat similar to it. And it speaks again of the idea of dwelling and of, of presence. And so it is very specifically and directly applied to Jesus by John who sees in Christ God a very God having come to dwell with his people in a visible manifestation. And so God himself becomes incarnate in flesh physically that he might be seen, that he might be heard, that he might be met with. This is a glorious truth. To think that God will be with his people and by the way, people there, there's some debate whether it's people singular or plural that tends to be a leaning on the side of plural. But the idea here is that of not just Israel, but all of those who have ultimately come to the Lord. And by the way, that's not just a New Testament idea. Uh, let's look at a few passages that make this point, as a matter of fact. Let's look at Isaiah 56. My hope is that in reading some of these passages that some of you are shocked to see that it's there. Uh, we sometimes take for granted that the things we talk about are rooted wholly in the New Testament. But virtually every single thing that we talk about is actually rooted in the Old Testament first. Isaiah 56. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 here. This is the Lord speaking to his people, but notice what he says. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing evil, any evil. Do not let the son of the foreigner, the non-Jew, do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, the Lord has utterly separated me from his people. 
nor let the eunuchs say, Here I am, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me, and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and will make, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their, burning, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. We've heard that before, right? This is what set Jesus off on the Pharisees and scribes when they had defiled it by blocking passage to the Lord, uh, to the Father through their, their, you know, their greed and such. And verse 8, the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. Now keep that in mind and turn to John chapter 1. By the way, I'm not just doing this to make sure I take my time through these two chapters. It's important that we do know these things. John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Well, verse 10. He was in the world, speaking of Christ, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, meaning his own people, and his own people did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The Lord has always desired to bring all people to himself. The Jews are, were and are, continue to be and will always be his chosen people in a very special and unique sense. We didn't inherit their problems, or problems. <laughs> we did, actually. But we're, we're, we're human just like that. But, but we did not inherit their promises, okay? We did not take over the promises of Israel. As a matter of fact, in my opinion, you have to be blind to go through the Old and New Testament and not realize that God will be faithful to his people, ethnically, nationally, Israel, all the way through. He will be. And Paul deals with that in, in uh, Romans chapter 11 when he goes on for a little bit here talking about how we were grafted into the vine. Now, I know I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again for anybody who's new with this or anybody who wrestles with this. Paul, matter of fact, turn to Romans chapter 11. It brings me great joy to hear pages turning and people looking and pulling pens out. This is important stuff. This is the Word of God, so we want to know what he has to say. Verse 16 of chapter 11. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you... And the you here are the believers in Rome who are Gentile predominantly. And you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them. And, th and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. Notice 
with them, not instead of them, with them. Became a partaker. Alongside of them, we came being grafted in to partake along with them of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. It's almost as though anti-Semitism existed even then. I don't want to read into that and say that's what was going on for sure. But that's what it sounds like today in the church. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Arrogant. Doesn't say that I said that. Uh, Well said. Not, Not me, but the passage before. Because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. You know what that means? Well, I'll tell you what it means in a minute. Just be scared for a minute. Um, Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you will also be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? In other words, you and I don't fit. He made us fit. But those that did fit can fit again. Okay, that's a simple way to sort of put that. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. And here's what he wants us to understand. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And he goes on, ears up. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. You could not make a stronger statement that God is going to be faithful to his chosen people, Israel. However, he has also added to them us. And here's what verse 21 was all about. So if you're sweating, let me let you off the hook for a moment. What Paul is saying is that if God cannot be faithful to his own covenant people who he has sworn to be faithful to forever, Israel, then you and I have got some legitimate concern as to whether or not he will be faithful to us. That would be terrifying. And you know what would terrify us about that? If he stopped being faithful to Israel. But he doesn't. He hasn't, and he won't. So, one more passage, and then we'll go back to Revelation 21. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. And by the way, I get a little worked up about that, but don't believe that because I get worked up about it. Believe it because that's what the Bible says. The Word of God is true. And, this is, and, and Paul goes to great lengths to make this point. Now, what we're going to read in Ephesians chapter 2 helps us get back to Revelation 21. But that idea of God's faithfulness to his people Israel is a foundational principle that we do not want to let go of. 
We want to stand on it and support God's chosen people. And also on top of that, remember that our understanding of his faithfulness toward us is in large part because of the faithfulness he's demonstrated and continues to demonstrate and will in the future demonstrate to them. But here's, uh, here's what I think helps us kind of get back to Revelation 21, chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. For he himself, speaking of Jesus, he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, that is to Gentiles, those who are not part of the branch, those who are not part of the commonwealth of Israel. You who are far off, he preached peace to us, uh, and to those who are near as well, in other words, to the Jews. For, uh, for through him, we both have access by one spirit to the same Father. Now, some will look at that passage and say, well, see, this is where Israel according to the flesh is sort of, this is one example of where Israel according to the flesh is sort of set aside. God, as Paul would also describe in, in Romans, talk, uh, God has created sort of this, this new offspring of Abraham by faith. And they're sort of built into that mindset and those who hold it, an either-or proposition. It's actually a both-and. God is faithful to his people Israel and will fulfill his promises to them. And I would suggest that you have no ability to understand the book of Revelation if you don't know that. You will spend all of your time trying to force into the book of Revelation things that were never intended to be seen there. Uh, the woman in Revelation 12. Oh, that's the church. I'm sorry, but the church did not give birth to the son. The Jews did through Mary. And that imagery, of course, shows up in, in uh, Genesis 37 uh, on top of it. But you will cons consistently misunderstand, misinterpret, and misapply the book of Revelation if you think that the church is the whole picture of what's going on there. We're not. We're not in most of it. We're in the part we're talking about now. We've returned with Christ in, in Revelation 19 when he comes back to set up his, his kingdom. We rule and reign with him in the kingdom. But we know these things because of what the Old and New Testaments tell us about this period of time. And we build our theology, our understanding of eschatology, and all of these related things based on what the scriptures have to say. And we let the scriptures say what they say, and we do, we do our best not to see it through a lens that sort of fits our sense of, of preference or our, our own pre-established theology. We don't do that. If the Bible says one thing and we say something else, we're wrong. The Bible is what we ultimately drives the conversation, the agenda. It helps us understand what is and what is not. And so in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2, this idea of bringing both people together in one body is this mystery called the church. But the mystery of the church does not negate the promises to Israel. As Paul said in Romans, we have been grafted in to receive some of those things. But it doesn't mean now that we are Israel, ethnically, nationally. We are partakers alongside of them now. But the promises made to them stand. And so, one last point on that, and this probably is the single most important point of it, is that in, we want to make sure that we recognize something very fundamental 
to what the scripture says about the gospel. In the Old Covenant, the Jews were given the law, not just the Ten Commandments, the 613 commandments. They were given civil, ceremonial, and religious laws that, lived, that, that basically established their religious and, and, and daily life. And they were required, based on their agreement to enter into that covenant, that they would keep the law. But here's where the mistake is made. And I think it's no irony whatsoever. I think it is absolutely the, the purpose and plan of God that of all people to explain this, it was a Pharisee, a converted Pharisee, somebody who came to know Christ, who spends most of his time writing about, deal, well, the, the, some of the largest portions of his writing dealing with this very subject. And by the way, so did Jesus. He deals with the issue of misunderstanding the purpose of the law. This is why Jesus could talk and, and, and accuse the Pharisees of keeping every nth degree of the law, but setting aside the weightier matters of righteousness and justice and these kinds of things. They would tithe and do all the things because they thought that following the law is what made them righteous. Finally, Paul in Galatians chapter 3, won't turn there for time's sake because I'm way off course where I was starting, but here we go. So in, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul goes to lengths to tell us why the law was given. It's like the entire catalog of the Old Testament is summed up by Paul in chapter 3 of Galatians when he says the law was a schoolmaster to help us walk between the lines. That's what that term speaks of, somebody who keeps us walking between the lines or something that keeps us walking between the lines until Christ came. But now that he's come, there is no longer a need for a schoolmaster. Does that mean the law doesn't matter? No. It means that now we understand it in perspective. Now we understand its purpose. What is its purpose? To help us see Christ when he came and to recognize him, because Jesus rightly said in John 5, you study the scriptures because it's in them you think that you have eternal life, but it is they that speak of me. He is the point of the entire law. And his ability to keep the entire law without violating even in thought and then he goes to the cross and pays for our sins. He rightly, of course, rightly, as he said, did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And that's why Paul can say, and that's why in Acts 15, the very first council the church ever had dealt with this question. The law has been satisfied in Christ. Therefore, nobody comes through Moses to come to Jesus anymore. Nobody has to follow the law and observe the holy days and all the different things that were required of God's covenant people who agreed to that covenant but rather we now come purely and totally by faith. But wait a minute. It turns out that what Paul is actually saying in Galatians and Romans is that we have always come by faith. There, Romans 3.23, who knows it? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How many people, based on that verse, remember the Bible tells us what is and what is not. How many people ever got to heaven by keeping the law? Zero. None, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is Paul's entire point when he talks about the law being beautiful and lofty, but it ultimately kills me. Not because the law is the problem, but because I'm the problem. I'm incapable of keeping it. And so therefore Christ came to satisfy the law, becomes one of us, to, to, to take back what Adam ultimately lost, Christ gains back at the cross. 
and therefore we now come by faith. The law is still lofty and beautiful and an expression of the holiness of God. But no one ever went to heaven by keeping it because we couldn't. And so now we understand what the law is for. In other words, I go through all that to say this, is that if we're not careful, we might be left to believe that there are two Gospels, an Old Testament Gospel and a New Testament Gospel. There's not, and there never, ever has been. There's always only been one. That's why when Paul quotes twice, uh, Julie and I were just talking about this, in, in, uh, in Galatians and Romans, and if Paul wrote Hebrews three times, Paul says it, he quotes this verse, the just shall live by faith. New Testament, right? Where does it come from? Habakkuk in the Old Testament. It's always been the gospel, and it's always been by faith. This is really important for us to understand. If we think that somebody, and by the way, Jews today feel they're still under the Old Covenant. The problem is not that they're saved by obedience to the Old Covenant. The problem is they don't understand in the same way that those in Jesus' time didn't understand. And that's why we bring the gospel to them and help them see. And it's, it's fascinating, by the way, that Paul reasoned with the people in his time from the Old Testament. We can use the Old Testament for this. We have the benefit of Paul's writings now. We have the benefit of the New Testament. We have the Gospels. We have the writings. We have everything in the New Testament. But do you know something? You can actually preach the Gospel from the Old Testament. And you can start with Habakkuk 2.4. So when we come back to Revelation 21, finally, verse 3 again, and it looks like this is as far as we're going to get today. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Now, of course, earlier in the same book, we saw where people from every tribe, tongue, and nation were gathered around the throne worshiping, right? That would be enough to understand that there's people from every background. There's people from all across the world and all across time, Jew and Gentile, who are saved and standing before the Lord in worship. But we need to understand uh, it's not just in the New Testament that we see this. It is throughout the Old. It is throughout the Gospels. It is throughout the New Testament following Acts and beyond. This has always been God's message. And because that's true, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation can stand before the throne of God, having been saved by God's grace through faith, not of works. It never has been, lest any should boast. So I'm going to stop there. Um, and I will give a minute or two for any questions that anybody may have about any of that, or I guess anything we've been covering so far. If not, we'll just... Worship and y'all can get out early, I guess. But uh, but if you have a question, please feel free. We like to do this once in a while, just because um, sometimes I don't explain things clearly. Nothing. All right. Going once, twice. Oh, we do have one. Okay, Debbie. Yeah. Say again. I'm, I'm sorry. The hastening of the day of the Lord. No. Um, no, because that would imply that you can sort of change God's will on things and timing. 
And if, there's probably not many things we could imagine that are more terrifying than that. Uh, the idea that we could sort of alter God's way of doing things. Um, on the other hand, the idea of hasten is, is, a, is a term of expectation. Lord, bring it quickly. You know, in the New Testament, we would look at First uh, Corinthians 16, Maranatha, right? Come quickly, Lord. That's our longing. That's our desire. We don't know when it's going to ultimately unfold, but we should live with the expectancy, Lord, please bring it soon. Uh, like like uh, Peter said, we look forward to this, right? Now, we've said before, and I'll say it again, you know, prior to Revelation 21 was chapters 6 through 20, which is really heavy. A lot of judgment. Those are not things we're excited about from a human standpoint among our fellow men. Hopefully our hearts are such where we so desperately want to see people saved before that day ever comes. But nonetheless, we also are heavily sickened by what goes on in the world around us where to ask for it to continue is also sort of rough because that means, Lord, we don't want you to end some of the horrible things that are going on so this is a tension that we live in, and it's just what it is. In a fallen world, we live in the tension between, Lord, please come quickly, but not until you save my kid, or something like that, right? This is important. And, but at the end of the day, God will always do what's right and what's good. Uh, it is interesting that when Jesus said, Father, let, your, you know, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It's the ultimate example of submission, Right? It required difficulty, pain, suffering, hardship, death for God's purposes to be accomplished. We would not want that upon him, but because God did fulfill his purposes in this, we now are saved. Again, there's that tension. It seems horrifying that my sin would make that happen to somebody. If I were standing there, I'd, I'd be like Peter not wanting the Lord to wash his feet, right? Lord, if, you should not take that for me. But he had to take that for us in order for us to be saved. And out of his great love, he was willing to. Um, but as far as hastening the day, we do pray for that to come quickly. But we also recognize if it comes right now, there's a lot of people that are not. But on the other hand, we also recognize that nobody loves people more than God does. I mean, we love our kid, our neighbor, our coworker, all this kind of stuff, wanting them to be saved. But God loves them even more. And so we can trust in his hands that he will do things exactly right. But the expectation is a very natural, normal, and even biblically encouraged one. So, you know. But no, I don't think we can actually change what God does per se. Yeah, Jeff. Um, just do, just do uh, Let's do one at a time. My memory's not that good. Well, the answer is both, because the second coming precipitates the millennial kingdom, and then what we're reading now comes after the millennial kingdom. Okay. Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Okay. And who is going to, uh, do we know from Scripture who's going to be, are, are we going to be separated from all the new earth and some in the new heaven, or will, will it, it, can we tell if there's going to be movement back and forth? That's an interesting question. Um, <laughs> so... Um, okay, so 
we, it's normal and typical for us to say when we die as believers, we go to heaven, right? Because we do, right? I mean, our, we don't get our glorified bodies until that first resurrection is completed and the glorified body or when Jesus returns and that kind of thing, 1 Corinthians 15. Um, so one of the things we don't know for sure is when God creates a new heavens and new earth, does that include just like the earth? I'm so sorry. Let me just put this in here. When we talk about heaven, the Bible describes or at least alludes to what we would basically describe as three things that can be spoken of when we say heaven. One is the sky in which we see around us, right, the atmosphere. That would be the first heaven. The second heaven would be the universe, the, the, you know, the creation outside of the earth and that kind of thing. When we talk about the third heaven, like when Paul talks about knowing this one who goes to the third heaven, this is now where God dwells. This is the heaven we think about when we say heaven. So does God, in creating a new heavens and new earth, include his own place of throne room in that recreation or not? I don't know. I, I kind of don't think so. I think he's just talking about the earth and the universe and all that kind of stuff. But we'll see. We don't know. Um, so, but he will create a new heavens and a new earth. And as the passage seems to indicate, this is brand new. In other words, the, the earth that he'll create in that day and the heavens he creates in that day, the sky, the space, and all that kind of stuff, the terms are used in, that, are, that are used are familiar to us. So we assume it means a world like a globe, you know, a, a, an earth, a planet earth kind of thing, and then also the new heavens and all that. Now, where do we spend eternity once that's all recreated and all that kind of thing? Well, the Bible seems to give lots of indication that there is this experiencing God around the throne, but there's also seems to be this um, new Jerusalem coming down to earth, right, and this kind of thing. So my, my thought would be both. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say. Now, by the way, I, I should say, some of you are listening to this answer and you're saying, I heard a Jehovah's Witness describe something kind of like this. Um, and that kind of thing. Well, they, they borrow from some biblical truths, but their, their understanding and ex exploring of eschatology is way, way, way off in lots and lots of ways. But the idea of a new heavens and a new earth is clearly a biblical thing. Um, the idea that we could enjoy God in both of those contexts, I think, is what the Bible has in view. I don't think it's exclusively one or the other, because there is this new creation that apparently we enjoy. Um, some have gone as far as to say, and I don't think it's unreasonable, it just may not be that familiar to us, but for the sake of erasing any views of us sitting on clouds strumming harps and that kind of thing, that some people don't like the idea of heaven because they think they'll be bored forever. How many chords can there be after all, you know? <laughs> but, um, but some have gone so far as to say, and, and there's, not, there's not scripture to kind of back this idea up a little bit if we're understanding it correctly, but it may very well be that much like in Eden, We'll be given responsibilities, we'll be given work to do, there'll be things that we can enjoy and all that kind of thing. Um, you know, I, I don't know what that for sure is going to be, um, but I, it does seem as though we get to enjoy him in his presence in heaven, but also uh, on, a, on a, recre a new, newly created earth as well. So that's a great question though. I was actually, I was just spending, I probably spent an hour looking at that this week, that very thing, and that's the best that I could come up with. So <laughs> anyone else? Zach, yeah. yeah. Sorry, the light was in my... Oh. Okay. 
I, I think it doesn't exist yet because it seems like it comes on the heels of the dissolving of this entire existing order of things now. So it would seem as though it is just created right there in that moment. Um, now, the New Jerusalem is questionable because it seems like it comes down like it already was there somehow. But again, we don't know for sure, but that just seems to be the implication there. Um, but as far as uh, a new heavens and new earth, um, I mean, I suppose we could have fun with the multiverse idea and all that kind of thing. But, but I would say the new heavens and new earth means everything is changed. You know, I, I don't think the Lord sort of just got a stockpile of necessarily, you know. Um, on the other hand, let me flip the coin over. For those who struggle with Genesis chapter 1, let there be light and so on. Let there be the firmaments and all these kinds of things. And, and God just speaks these things into existence. And we say, oh, well, you know, it's, you know, it's got to be millions of years and evolution and all this kind of thing. I don't know whether it's young or old earth. I happen to hold a young earth view, but whatever the case, the idea that God could simply bring these things into existence should not, should not be much for us to get our minds around. You know? uh, and, and the fact that he does this again in Revelation 21 seems to just be another emphasis of the fact that really it didn't take him seven days because that's just how long it took. It took him seven days because he gave us a model of seven days and resting on the seventh day and, and that whole idea. But, but God could do it without any effort, you know, and all that kind of thing. So anyway, so I, I, I happen to think it's all brand new and he just recreates it in that moment right there. Um, and, and I love this sort of thing where on the one hand, the, those who are lost, like everything they're standing on is gone. And the next thing you see is those who are saved having firm footing in heaven's country and, you know, with the Lord and everything. It's just, I think it's kind of an interesting thing. It's a great question. Yeah. Yeah. Right. This is one of the possibilities, yeah. It's, uh, in my father's house, there are many mansions. If we're not so, I would have told you. I'd go and prepare a place for you that where I am you may also be. Another great invitation to know that we'll be with him in, in that place. But is he talking about developing habitation places? Is he talking about our glorified bodies? Is he talking about the New Jerusalem? There are people that hold all three of those views. So I, I don't really know for sure, but it definitely is a possibility that that's what's in view. Absolutely. Anyone else? So you went from like, we're about to close shop, and then there you all go. That's great. This is really good, by the way. And, and by the way, this is important, I think, for us, just because it's good for us to have an opportunity to engage. And by the way, I'm not the last word on anything. I just think it's good to open up for conversation about things that we wonder about. And I think as believers, we should be doing that together. And we just happen to be small enough where we can still get away with it on a Sunday. So uh, any more before we pray? All right. Well, praise the Lord. Father, we're very grateful for your goodness and grace toward us. We're thankful for all that is yet to come. And we pray for the grace to navigate the tension between our desire to see you hasten the day and, and bring things about, but yet our longing to see those that we know and love saved, uh, who are currently not. We do thank you that we can take solace in knowing that even after the church is no longer on the scene, there will be many people coming to faith during that season. Uh, but, Father, it, it does break our hearts to think that it might take that for some. So, Father, if there are any among us now that don't know you, I would just pray that here in this moment that they would quiet their hearts before you, having heard what they've heard from your word today, and no doubt under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, would come to that point of recognizing that they need to be right with you today. And so if that's you, I want to invite you to pray with me. The gospel is simply this. 
that you and I were born in sin. It's not just what we do, it's what we are. And there's nothing that we can do to fix that. And because the problem is that if we can't be right before God, we can't go be with God when we die, Jesus has come both to glorify himself and his Father and also to set us free from the chains and shackles of sin and death. And having gone to the cross, having perfectly kept the law and being God incarnate in the flesh, he alone was worthy to take our sin and even willing to take our sin upon himself. And therefore he who knew no sin became sin with our sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is the good news that he died and was buried and rose again the third day, all according to God's scripture, the, 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 the word given even in times past, pointing to that great event that demonstrated the love of God who loves you so much that he was willing to give his only begotten son, that any who would believe in him, including you, would not perish but have everlasting life. And so we want to give you an opportunity to come to him today, acknowledging that apart from him you have no hope, that you are in fact a sinner who is in need of his grace and the forgiveness that he bought and paid for once and for all on the cross. So if you're here today and you're ready to come, I want to give you that opportunity now. Pray with me if you would. Heavenly Father, I confess to you that I am a sinner. I have kept you away. I have disobeyed. I have put myself on the throne of my life. But I realize now that apart from you, I'm lost and doomed. But I believe that Jesus came, God in the flesh, and took my sin upon himself and paid for it once and for all at the cross. That he died and that he rose again that third day. And I trust him. I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you for your love, your forgiveness. And I thank you that you would come for a sinner like me. And I ask you to help me to walk in your ways until I see you face to face and stand in your presence. And I thank you that when I do, I won't have to be afraid and I will no longer be ashamed. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you prayed and came to the Lord right there, I'd invite you to stick around after service so we can talk and pray with you, help you understand what it means to begin to walk with the Lord and to, to get to know him better every day as we study his word together and as you spend time with him on your own. But for the rest of you, actually all of you, why don't we go ahead and stand and let's sing with a closing song today and worship. Let's sing, How Great Is Our God. Ah. Uh -huh.
True words can never be spoken. We worship and adore you and bless you, the name above all names. And so we gladly call out the name Jesus. We gladly worship and bless and adore you. And we ask you to go before us, taking us by the hand, carrying us, Lord, into each new day, recognizing that it brings us a day closer to seeing you face to face. And Father, we thank you for that great hope. Father, we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful week.